Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their due context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is climate change and pollution, but not in the way you'd think. This is in The Guardian. Diesel pollution stunts children's lung growth, major study shows. Pollution from diesel vehicles is stunting the growth of children's lungs, leaving them damaged for life, a major study has found. The research conducted with more than 2,000 school children in London is the first such study in a city where diesel pollution is a significant factor and has implications for cities around the world. It also showed that changes to deter polluting trucks from entering the city did reduce air pollution a little, but did not reduce the harm to children's lungs. The World Health Organization classifies air pollution, which causes 7 million early deaths every year, a global public health emergency. 90% of children around the world breathe unsafe air. Growing children are especially vulnerable to toxic air and previous research is linked to low birth weights, cot deaths, obesity and mental health problems. Most urban areas in the UK have illegal levels of nitrogen dioxide pollution and the government has suffered three legal defeats over the inadequacy of its plans. The latest government action plan, which environmental lawyers called pitiful, revealed air pollution was even worse than previously feared. We are raising a generation of children with stunted lung capacity, said Professor Chris Griffiths at Queen Mary University of London, who led the research team. This reflects a car industry that has deceived the consumer and the central government, which continues to fail to act decisively to ensure towns and cities cut traffic. The public very much wants better air quality, and they are right. A study published in the Lancet Public Health found the capacity of children's lungs was reduced by about 5% when NO2 pollution was above legal levels. Lung capacity peaks at age 18, then declines. Griffith said, if your lungs are already smaller than they should be as you enter adulthood, then as they decline with age, you'll be higher risk of an early death, as well as at higher risk of lung diseases, he said. The researchers said doctors should consider advising parents of children with lung problems to avoid living in high pollution areas if possible or to limit their exposure. This new study reveals the terrible legacy of successive governments' failure to active or illegal levels of air pollution, said Andrea Lee, an environmental lawyer's client Earth. A new stricter ultra-low emission zone, which will extend the low emission zone charge that applies to polluting trucks to cars, will begin in London in April 2019, but Lee said action is also needed at a national level. We need ministers to implement emergency measures to tackle pollution around schools and nurseries and fund the move to cleaner forms of transport, not wash their hands of the problem and leave it for the local government to sort out, she said. Samantha Walker at Asthma UK said it is disappointing that the LEZ in London has not helped to improve children's lung capacity and shows that a piecemeal approach to reducing air pollution does not work. The new research tested the lung capacity of 8- to 9-year-old children from 28 primary schools across East London between 2009 and 2014. It began just after LEZ charges began and continued after the rules were tightened in 2012. Air pollution was reduced by an average of, of 1 to 2 micrograms per cubic metre of air at the roadside, but at the end of the study, the annual average was still about 70 micrograms per cubic metre of air, far above the 40 microgram per cubic metre of air legal limit. Referring to the stunting of lung growth and asthma symptoms, Griffith said it is disappointing that we didn't see an impact, but he said it was critical public health policies were evaluated to test their effectiveness and that the work has informed the design of the stricter ULEZ. The results of the study would apply to many cities, Griffith said. Air quality in London is bad, but it's similarly bad in other UK cities and cities across Europe, and of course in India and China it is notoriously bad. The Guardian revealed in 2017 that hundreds of thousands of children were being exposed to illegal levels of air pollution from diesel vehicles at schools and nurseries across England and Wales, with the poorest neighbourhoods most severely affected. 
The new research has many notable strengths, including detailed air pollution measurements and high-quality data on the children's respiratory health, according to a commentary in The Lancet Public Health by Hannah Bugard and Anamon Van Uert by the Health Effects Institute in Boston, America. But they noted it was not possible to include control groups in the study and that the NO2 reductions were quite small, making it harder to link air pollution to stunted lungs. Nonetheless, a statistically significant link was shown. Evidence from California suggests it is a causal link because children's lung damage there reduced as air quality improved between 1994 and 2011. It's been claimed that diesel cars are better for contributing less to human-caused climate change. And, well, I've talked about climate change in episodes 18 and 29. It's a massive scam to justify an enormous transformation of human society. And the shape that's designed to take I describe in episodes 18 and 29. On one level, the pollution is intended as a fundamental part of the depopulation agenda I've mentioned many times. The reason for which is the smart cities agenda. Government's failure to act on whatever issue is not always down to ignorance or incompetence, but sometimes intention. This doesn't mean everyone in government, of course, but certain people. Talking of ignorance, climate change is a massive scam to justify an enormous transformation of human society, as I've just said. But most people, of course, are ignorant of this fact. Therefore, there's no challenge to changes in society that are introduced to tackle climate change on the basis that it's caused by humans or even caused by anything on the planet when it's actually caused by the sunspot, explosions of heat and energy, some as big as Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system, that reach the Earth is what we call solar radiation. The sun goes in cycles and as it goes around the cycle of sunspot activity at certain points it releases enormous energy and heat which is the sunspot explosions of energy that reach the earth as solar radiation this is why other planets in the solar system have also experienced warming that's not me that's benny Pizer, a social anthropologist at liverpool drummores university monitoring studies and news reports of asteroids global warming and other potentially apocalyptic topics he said in his daily newsletter from a blog called Stratosphere, S-T-R-A-T-A, Sphere. He said, Global warming on Neptune's moon Triton, as well as Jupiter and Pluto and now Mars, is some scientists scratching their heads over what could possibly be in common with warming of all these planets. Could there be something in common with all the planets in our solar system that might cause them all to warm at the same time? It's the sun. However, if you can persuade people that they're the cause, then you can justify introducing changes in society, including health-destroying introductions like diesel and smart meters, and global change ultimately to advance your agenda on the basis of a massive lie. The point is, however, that because most people have no idea that human caused climate change is a lie, because they do no research beyond the official line that they get given through education, through the media, through government, then they won't challenge these introductions into society, they won't challenge switching to diesel to save the planet or smart meters or other changes and in introductions into society because it's to save the planet, they think, because that's what they're told. And so these health-destroying, and in the case of smart meters, potentially perception-manipulating introductions into society have terrible effects on health. And if people knew human-caused climate change was a lie, they'd challenge and never accept these introductions into society. Pollution and toxins in the air is desired by the elite. There is an agenda to toxify and irradiate the atmosphere for a few reasons, one of which is depopulation, another of which is to change the genetic form of humans to make them able to live in a society of constant, immense radiation and toxicity of the smart cities, and the other reason, which is very deep down the rabbit hole, as it were. It's absolutely vital to the elite and their agenda that human-caused climate change is never exposed publicly for the scam that it is, because of what I've seen 
referred to before as defending the first domino. If you line a row of dominoes up correctly, you know that when one goes, they all go. So if human-caused climate change was exposed, that's the first domino. The next domino, the next answer to the obvious next question is, how were we lied to so systematically? And the answer to that reveals the compartmentalization and coordination of massive society and world-changing lies like human-caused climate change. And then people realize there's a structure of control and manipulation that facilitates that manipulation on that scale. And then as the dominoes fall, eventually people realize there is an elite, tiny few people ultimately directing human society with a very sinister agenda for the human race. And that's what they don't want people to know. So it's not just protecting the lie because of the enormous change it justifies, but also protecting the lie because they absolutely have to protect the lie. Otherwise, the game's up because of what is revealed as the dominoes fall from the understanding that it's a lie. This is an important point in relation to this pollution story because public health policies are often not public health policies. Government policies are not always in relation to people. They're not people policies, they're agenda policies because society is agenda driven, not people driven. And the next subject this week is Channel Islands and electricity. This is in The Independent. Entire Channel Island could be evacuated after power company vows to cut off electricity amid pay round. Residents of an idyllic car-free Channel Island could be forced to leave as power and water are set to be turned off within weeks amid a pay round. The 500-strong population of Sark fear a full evacuation as the sole energy provider is about to shut down and cut off the power supply at the end of the month. The situation, which has been described by politicians as resembling a wartime mentality, has been caused by a dispute over prices. And in an unprecedented letter to all residents, Sark Electricity Limited said the island would be plunged into a public health emergency if local people remained after the planned cut-off date of 30th November. The island's government is now desperately trying to draw up contingency plans to ensure there is electricity in several key buildings if power is cut. The dispute between SEL and the island's government, known as Chief Please, began earlier this year when Price Controller Commissioner Anthony White ordered the utility firm to reduce its price per kilowatt an hour from 66p to 52p from August, following long-standing cost concerns. The company, which powers 300 homes with its diesel generator, says that it has since lost £20,000 a month and no longer has the funds to continue with a legal challenge to the order. In the letter... David Gordon Brown, the firm's managing director, said without the electricity to provide water, the government would quickly have a public health emergency if it allows anyone to remain on site. So although we will not be providing a general supply beyond the end of the month, we will work with the Medical and Emergency Services Committee to make sure that doctors and essential emergency services can function for another week beyond the end of the month to cover the transition period as everyone moves off the island. Speaking after sending the letter, Mr Gordon Brown said he could not see any situation where the residents would be able to remain. He added, I hate to say it, but people will have no option but to leave. That is the fact of the matter, as there will be no electricity. Chief, please want to put together a contingency plan, but I don't think they are capable of doing that. They are a dysfunctional government. Chief, please will just do what they always do and that is nothing the only hope is to get someone independent in to bang some heads together and if they want to bang mine that's fine i'm up for it it is a very sad state of affairs the article goes on 
Sark is famous as one of the few remaining places in the world where cars are banned from roads and only tractors and horse-drawn vehicles are allowed. In 2011, it also became the first official dark sky island in the world due to its efforts to minimise light pollution. William Rabin, Deputy Chairman of Sark's Policy and Finance Committee, said that residents were becoming increasingly concerned at the looming cut-off date. He said, we are drawing up the contingency plans as pressure builds as we move towards the 30th. We have to make sure that island residents are in a secure position. It is the letter in which the company's managing director talked about people having to leave Sark, which has really upset people here. There is so much uncertainty and worry. Mr. Raymond said he was confident a mass exodus could be avoided if we can get our contingency plans in place. He added, they are in the development stage at the moment, so I can't give out too much details, but it will involve consolidating around certain centres, making sure there are certain buildings that have power so people can congregate there. It really is a wartime mentality. Do you really expect people to be living like this in the 21st century? Well, you do if you know the agenda, which I'll get to shortly. Deputy Peter Ferbrach, president of Guernsey State's Trading Supervisory Board this week, said he hoped Guernsey Electricity could step in if the lights are definitely going to go out. The article goes on. However, it is not clear how the firm could practically be able to provide electricity to the island. Mr Gordon Brown dismissed the idea and added the last thing currency electricity want to do is get involved with SART politics. Tony Lalive, chairman of SART's Chamber of Commerce, said that residents and businesses were now genuinely concerned about what would happen. He said, with no power and no water, we wouldn't be able to live here. It should have been sorted out amicably. We should not be three weeks away from our power being switched off. I hope someone with some common sense will get the two parties to sit down, perhaps with a mediator who is independent and can look at the situation from both sides. And there's another article here which doesn't seem to be connected, but is fundamentally connected for reasons I'll explain after reading the article. This is in the Daily Mail. Britain faces a fight over fishing rights as Brussels demands closer alignment with EU trade rules post-Brexit. Brussels is lining up for a fight with Theresa May over fishing rights and demanding deeper alignment with EU trade rules post-Brexit. The potentially toxic demands were raised by member states as they met EU Brexit chief Michael Barnier and will be pressed further as tough negotiations continue over the weekend. Mr Barnier met with member ambassadors in Brussels yesterday for the first time since striking an agreement with Britain on a withdrawal pact. The discussion focused on the political declaration, a separate document which spells out the parameters for the future trading relationship. It is still being drafted as talks continue, with both sides hoping to agree a final text by Monday, but some states which rely on EU-allocated quotas of fish from UK waters have made clear they want guaranteed access. Fishermen in France, Spain, Denmark, the Netherlands, Sweden, Belgium, Ireland and Portugal are all varyingly dependent on their quotas. Some wanted guarantees written into the withdrawal agreement as part of the customs union which would come into effect if the Irish backstop kicks in. But Britain scored a victory by resisting this as it would have made the commitment legally binding. Instead, the withdrawal agreement simply states both sides will carry out their best endeavours to conclude a fisheries deal by July 2020. European capitals also want deeper dynamic alignment to the bloc's trading rules. This would be in areas like state aid, environmental and workers' rights to ensure the UK cannot undercut businesses on the continent. One source said member states are looking for more on those two issues. They effectively pointed this out, that they want a tighter declaration. Another diplomat said our position has not changed. We want the access to fisheries in the agreement. The article goes on. Concessions on fishing would throw any deal into further doubt as access to UK waters was a key battleground during the referendum campaign. Now, why it was a key battleground during the campaign will become clear. Well, this is absolutely in line with the agenda to clear people from 
rural land and countryside and vast tracts of land into the cities. This is the United Nations Agenda 21, which I've mentioned many times before. Agenda 21, justified by the human-caused climate change lie, where countries are regionalised and broken up into megacities. Each megacity or smart city will specialise in a certain area of society. This is the real reason for Britain's fishing being sold off in the first place, because if you are the elite and you want a global dictatorship, you need interdependence, because if a country, especially one as significant as Britain, is independent, then you can't control them from a central point. The agenda is to make countries dependent on each other, so there's no independence, and independence equals freedom. You cannot be truly free while still relying on someone or something for what you need and that's the idea if you centrally control all those countries you make those countries dependent on you because if those countries don't play ball you can make life very difficult for them in terms of acquisition and trade of essentials because they're relying on another country or countries which you also control this is how the european union works for example and that's why the european union works this way as I've said before, the agenda is for a world government dictating to the unions. They want unions for each part of the world, and those unions would dictate to the regionalised megacity countries, what we now call countries. So you have this system of interdependence from the bottom up. If you want to centrally control, you have to constantly take decision-making power away from the many into the hands of the few, centrally controlling. Because diversity of decision-making means too many perspectives and too many areas of decision-making which cannot all be centrally controlled. So you have to bring decision-making to fewer and fewer people until you, with the tiny few, have the power to make decisions over all those previously diverse points of decision-making. Cutting off the electricity supply is obviously going to motivate people to leave and move elsewhere, and how many of them would move into the city on the mainland? Over 500 people we're talking about. This story is a great example, ironically, of how life would be in the megacities, the smart cities, with what former CIA director David Petraeus calls the Internet of Things, where home utilities and other features of the home, like the TV, are connected to the Internet, and if you challenge or expose authority, or make the wrong comment, alleged wrong comment, in the wrong place or to the wrong person about authority or government, an unelected world government in the end, and if you don't want to live life as a slave, then your electricity or heating or whatever can be cut off, and access to credit, purely electronic currency, no cash, will be removed. We're looking at an agenda of total control on one level, and then the real reason for the smart cities agenda, which I talk about in episode 11. When you know the agenda, stories like this are another reminder that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And the next subject this week is welfare in the UK. This is in the Telegraph. UK's welfare system is cruel and misogynistic, says UN expert after damning report on poverty. Britain's welfare system is so sexist it may as well have been compiled by a group of misogynists in a room, a UN expert claimed. Everything's got to be about gender now, hasn't it? You can't just look at a situation as it is. It's got to be how it relates to men or women or whatever other gender. Philip Alston, the UN's rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights, warned that poverty in the UK is a political choice and that compassion and concern have been outsourced in favour of tax cuts for the rich. In a damning 24-page report, he brands levels of child poverty not just a disgrace but a social calamity and an economic disaster and said that limiting benefit payments to two children was as forced and physical as China's one-child policy. Critics of the UN's involvement in UK politics suggested that the organisation should have spent its time and money studying poverty in third world countries rather than the world's fifth largest economy. But there's a reason why it's involved with the world's fifth largest economy and 
I'll get to that in a minute. David Gordon, director of the Townsend Centre for International Property Research at the University of Bristol, said there's an oddity to this, obviously. When you think of the special rapporteurs on extreme poverty and human rights, you expect them to be visiting sub-Saharan Africa or Haiti. You don't expect them to be visiting the UK. Well, you do if you know the agenda. In 2013, the UN criticised the UK for changes to housing policy, nicknamed the bedroom tax, claiming it undermined the right to adequate housing. On that occasion, ministers branded the report a misleading Marxist diatribe and made an official complaint to the UN describing the intervention in British politics as a disgrace. Alston also angered President Trump's administration earlier this year after a similar inspection resulted in accusations that his White House was implementing cruel policies. The White House implementing cruel policies? No. I've never heard the like. Of course they are. We're talking about the... Um, we're talking about the American government here. Of course they implement cruel policies. Alston insisted his UK report was an important case study to better understand the implications of an austerity approach, but the government said it completely disagreed with his analysis, pointing out there are now one million fewer people living in absolute poverty compared with 2010. The Australian human rights lawyer spent months investigating poverty in Britain before spending two weeks speaking to residents of some of the UK's poorest neighbourhoods. His report states that 14 million people in the UK are living in poverty, with 1.5 million classed as destitute and unable to afford basic essentials. It warns that local authority cuts are damaging the fabric of society, that the community roots are being systematically broken, and that as a result the middle classes can soon find themselves living in hostile and welcoming communities. Well, there's a few points that come out of that, which I'll get to. Alston was particularly critical of Universal Credit, the controversial benefits system that merges six benefits into one payment, which he said had plunged people into misery and despair. Well, I talk about Universal Credit in episode 22. The article goes on. Alston said Tory reforms were driven by a commitment to achieving radical social re-engineering. Well, yeah, there is an agenda for social re-engineering, but it's not the Tory party's agenda. It's not the Tory party's policy, it's agenda policy. And the Tory party happened to be the party in power at this time. But just the party in power at this time, that's all. Alston also claimed that poverty could be erased if there was the political will to do so. Well, yeah, it could be, but there is not, so it won't be. The article goes on. Single women caring for children have been the worst hit by austerity cuts, he found. There is a really remarkable gender dimension to many of the reforms, he told a briefing in Westminster. If you got a group of misogynists together in a room and said, how can we make a system that works for men but not women, they wouldn't have come up with too many other ideas than what's in place. Well, the idea is that everyone's affected, as I'll get to. The article goes on. He said the single household payments meant that women were not often able to control the family income, putting them at greater risk of domestic violence. Don't know how that works, but anyway. He alleged that when he put this to Esther McVeigh, who was Work and Pensions Secretary, until she resigned over Brexit this week, she said that 90% of people in the UK have joint bank accounts anyway, so what's the problem? He claimed she added, well, if they're having problems, they should get counselling, and if things are really bad, they should leave. This is the mentality deciding what happens in our country. A government spokesman said, with this government's changes, household incomes have never been higher. Income inequality has fallen. The number of children living in workless households is at a record low. Universal Credit is supporting people into work faster, but we are listening to feedback and have made numerous improvements to the system, including ensuring 2.4 million households will be up to £630 better off a year as a result of raising the work allowance. Alston will report to the UN's Human Rights Council in June 2019. 
Well, this is yet another example of the Hunger Games Society, which I talk about considerably in episode 4. Going alongside the poverty of the Hunger Games Society is designed to be eventually the justification for a transformation of global banking and finance with a single electronic currency in a cashless society and a single world central bank dictating all global finance from a central point. The reason the UN are involved with the world's fifth largest economy is because if you want, as the elite do, a global dictatorship, you can't have superpowers in countries with advanced economies and with the military might to refuse to follow your orders because in that position they're more than equipped to refuse. So you have to destroy superpowers in the most developed and influential countries. And this is what we're seeing with America for this very reason. America is being used to destroy America financially and militarily, not least in manipulated overseas invasions. This is an example of creative destruction, as it's called, where you want to bring in a new system, a new structure. This is the social re-engineering Austin talks about. But to do that and justify doing that, you have to destroy the status quo and then introduce a new one. This is why, to quote Alston, these local authority cuts are damaging the fabric of society. The reason for the community roots being systematically broken, as Alston talks about, is that if you want to introduce this dictatorship, it helps if you break down anything bringing people together on a large scale. Because the elite know that because there's only a tiny few of them and billions of people subject to their manipulation and control, then the game is up if people come together, irrespective of any differences, gender, class, race, religion or no religion, differences, etc. And join together with a common goal of peaceful non-compliance with that which is designed to enslave us or already is enslaving us and manipulating and controlling people, the target population, which is everyone that's not the elite. I mean, if the American government of Obama and Trump if the American government in general cared about the people, that would be a start. But but if they cared about the people of America, they wouldn't spend trillions of dollars on the American military and invasions on a lie overseas. But it's not the American military, it's the American branch of the elite-owned military. The elite own the military globally and military intelligence, so the different militaries in each country are actually just the subsidiary branches of THE military, military with a capital M which the elite own. So it does whatever the elite want, which is disguised as being what the American government wants. It's not. It's what the long-planned agenda demands. Well, the American government do want it as well, but ultimately it's what the long-planned agenda wants. If the American government cared about the people, they wouldn't have spent the money they have invading Libya and Syria, where proxy armies of the West actually start the conflict. And then when the target regime starts attacking back, the leaders and spokespeople can't get to a microphone and a camera quick enough to condemn the regime and claim the need to invade as a humanitarian effort to save civilians when they bomb them from the sky. And fair enough, you could argue that America makes a certain amount of money from selling weaponry to the tyranny in Saudi Arabia, but a couple of points here. First of all, the money spent will far outweigh the money gained, and also, where do those weapons end up ultimately? Well, some of them end up being used to attack countries like Yemen. Does the media ever mention Yemen? I don't remember them mentioning it. There's a war in Yemen. First of all, the money spent will far outweigh the money gained, and also, where do those weapons end up ultimately? Well, some of them end up being used to attack countries like Yemen. Does the media ever mention Yemen? I don't remember them mentioning it. There's a war in Yemen. How many people know that? Also, some of the weaponry ends up in the hands of Islamic State, ISIS. Do Britain and America know that's where some of it will end up? Of course they do, ultimately. And that's part of the reason for selling the weaponry in the first place. People are not the priority when it comes to all this. The global agenda is priority. Because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven.
And the last subject this week is social media. This is in the Daily Mail. Teenagers set themselves on fire as part of a new social media challenge that is leaving them in hospital with serious burns. Teenagers are setting themselves on fire in a desperate attempt to find fame on the internet, hospital staff have revealed. The latest idiotic craze to sweep the internet called the Fire Challenge has seen teenagers film themselves dousing their bodies in accelerant and lighting it. In Wales, more and more cases are being seen by medical experts after the craze which began in 2014 picked up again. Specialist staff at Swansea's Morriston Hospital have confirmed they have seen a recent rise in the number of teenagers who are being admitted to hospital with serious burns. While the hospital did not wish to provide details of the different challenges, a quick search online reveals the scale of the problem. Youngsters have challenged to pour liquid on themselves and set themselves on fire in the latest insane craze. This has resulted in people requiring surgery and life support treatment. Abutawe Bro Morgong University. I think I pronounced that right. Health Board is now issuing a warning and some advice to anyone who has taken part in any of these challenges online. I can understand there is pressure on young people to gain acceptance or boost their online profiles by doing such risky things as these challenges, said Jeremy Yarrow, plastic surgeon at Morriston Hospital. But from the patients I see, the results could be very different, with some requiring life support treatment and many left with lifelong scars. Mr Yarrow added that while most teenagers presenting with burns are treated as outpatients, some are hospitalised for a considerable length of time. In some severe and sometimes life-threatening cases, they are admitted to hospital for long periods of time for complex surgery resulting in long-term mental and physical issues, he said. While the health board would not release specific details of the challenges doing the rounds online, they did confirm that there were various ones being attempted by teenagers. In August, a 12-year-old girl from Detroit burned 49% of her body in the bizarre trend. Timaya Landers performed the challenge in front of two friends at her home in Detroit, Michigan after her mother had made them pancakes. Within minutes of her mother leaving the girls alone, there was a loud explosion and Tamiya became engulfed in flames. Her stepfather put her in the bath and immediately began spraying water on her body while her mother tore off her burning clothes. Tamiya was put on a ventilator in intensive care and bandaged from her head to her knees. Anna Biney, a staff nurse at Morriston Hospital's Welsh Centre for Burns and Plastic Surgery, said they copied them from social media and YouTube and called them YouTube challenges. They film each other doing the challenges and then upload them in the hope they will become social media stars. We have definitely seen an increase in the number of teenagers who have suffered quite serious burns because of this. Miss Biony added, good first aid is essential. If you do it right, it can have a massive effect on the burn. But of course, the best thing to do is not to take part in these stunts in the first place. They may look exciting and spectacular on social media, but the reality is very different. They could be killed or scarred for life. Well, there's two ways to look at this situation. One is to say that it's just mad, or that's just stupid, what are they doing? Which it is, but another is to ask why it's happening. We've seen since the inception of social media with Facebook in 2004. I know MySpace came before that in 2003, but it all really started with Facebook. The focus on self and the expression of ego, the presentation of self to the world through social media. The ability to present a manufactured self to the world with statuses, photos and filters which makes someone's life seem much better than it is and by viewing that people feel they need to live up to this idealized image of someone else's life that really is not that person's life at all. Peer pressure has massively increased through social media because it's 24-7 and even when you're not online someone else is and they might be a friend, they might be someone viewing your video, they might be someone on Twitter and as well as fueling addiction this fuels the need to impress others so you don't get left behind. And that leads to ridiculous challenges like setting yourself on fire and 
Tide Pods, these laundry detergent pouches which kids were swallowing as part of another craze. Social media has also cultivated since its inception a hive mind groupthink mentality. I've talked before in episode 38 about groupthink and its effect. We see this on Twitter with Twitter storms when the PC mob attack anyone saying anything politically incorrect or that they don't like. Also, it's cultivated a sensationalist, substance-lacking mentality where anything very interesting gets blown out of proportion to become amazing or incredible, often on YouTube, so that the content creators get clicks on the video. Since YouTube introduced monetization, People have been trying to earn money from YouTube, and if you want people to click on your video, you have to entice them in. And that's where the sensationalism and the lack of substance comes from. People don't want substance nowadays because of this sensationalism, fueled by the rush to get more clicks and more popularity. And the more people see that, the more that becomes the normal. So anyone coming along with substance, because the substance is not hyped up like the sensationalized content and actually requires an attention span, then those videos, in many cases, not always, it depends whose video it is, of course, but in many cases, especially with young people, those videos will get a fraction of the views of the sensationalized and hyped up videos. We're seeing the deletion of substance and detail, which are the same thing, really. How many of those young people will never read a book of any significant length because they just can't handle the detail or they don't have the attention span? I recently reviewed a book. It was a non-fiction book, one of the most fascinating, interesting, engaging, wide-ranging, detailed, insightful, and controversial books I've ever read. It's nearly 700 pages in terms of actual content. How many kids nowadays will never get near that simply because of the attention span necessary? I say that this hive mind, sensationalist, substance-lacking, limited attention span mentality was engineered into place through social media. I say social media is as it is to generate this mentality because if you're the elite and you want global control and your means of achieving that global control is to keep people unaware of the true nature of world events or changes and introductions into society, then this very mentality I'm talking about is exactly what you'd want. It's perfect because you're cultivating a mentality with no interest in detail, substance or anything requiring an attention span. You see people, they're on their phone, they put it down, and then five seconds later they pick it back up again. It's almost like an appendage of their arm. It's part of their body almost. They can't be without it. We're seeing attention span decreasing, and I've talked before in episode 21 about how technology is changing the brain. Author and researcher Susan Greenfield told the House of Lords, part of Parliament in Westminster in London, they officially share the task of making and shaping laws and checking and challenging the government, when actually what many do is turn up pick up their £305 just for turning up and do very little else. They could go home after they pick up their money. Some of them will be active in debate and reviewing laws, but many of them just treat it as a way to earn free money. It's incredible that in 2018 we still allow this farce. Anyway, Greenfield addressed the House of Lords and she said that children's experiences on social networking sites are devoid of cohesive narrative and long-term significance. As a consequence, the mid-21st century mind might almost be infantilized, characterized by short attention spans, sensationalism, inability to empathize, and a shaky sense of identity. And Susan Greenfield's written a book called Mind Change about all this. This is exactly what I've described. This is perfect if you want to breed a population unable or unwilling to understand current affairs, world events and their true nature, and to understand context and substance. Greenfield has also said, if the young brain is exposed from the outset to a world of fast action and reaction, of instant new screen images flashing up with the press of a key, such rapid interchange might accustom the brain to operate over such timescales. 
Perhaps when in the real world such responses are not immediately forthcoming, we will see such behaviours and call them attention deficit disorder. Now, that's an important point, because how many kids nowadays are referred to child psychologists or psychiatrists because of behaviour, maybe in school for example, where they're being given boring, irrelevant to life work to do, and they start expressing symptoms of attention deficit disorder, which could be nothing more than being bored. And they refer to the child psychologist or psychiatrist who is supposed to be able to help the child without resorting to drugs by talking it through or cognitive therapy, for example. I thought that's what a psychologist's job was. Otherwise, what makes them any different to a GP? Okay, one's for physical problems, the other one's mental and emotional problems, but it's the same end result in many cases. Anyway, they'll go to the child psychologist or psychiatrist, and they'll get prescribed drugs like Ritalin, that's the most famous one. Of course, there will be exceptions, but in many cases, they'll be prescribed drugs. And these drugs can actually make them worse, far worse, not just in terms of attention problems, but other problems can manifest from taking these drugs. Why is this happening? Well... Some psychologists or psychiatrists, just like doctors, there will be exceptions, but how many, really? Some psychologists or psychiatrists will just believe that this or that drug is the answer or an answer, and they prescribe it without realising the effect it will have or could have. It's the pharmaceutical system as a whole that orchestrates this, and it's known what the effects will or could be, and that's why it's happening, because as I keep saying, society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The point is, however, when you look at what Greenfield said, and you look at brain plasticity, where the brain changes in relation to information received and experience, which is what Greenfield was alluding to in that quote, the second quote I read out, then the question must be asked, surely, what role does technology play in developing these alleged symptoms, with symptoms in inverted commas, of attention deficit disorder? Now, that's not to say that technology is the cause in every case, of course not. But we surely should be asking that question. Of course, there are certain things that do capture kids and young people's attention. Look at technology for a start. But why is it that kids are so obsessed with technology and smartphones and apps like Snapchat and WhatsApp, Instagram and others? Because they require no brain power. This is not a comment on the kids, it's a comment on the apps and the technology. We should, given this, surely ask the question again, what role, if any, does technology play in creating the progressive, safe space PC mob mentality? The PC mob are the PC mob because they react with emotion, which anybody can do, rather than first looking at facts, information, detail and substance, and then making a judgment on a situation or a statement. Looking at every situation on its merit also helps as well, rather than judging everyone as a group. This is groupthink again. Greenfield also says, It is hard to see how living this way on a daily basis, the focus on technology she means, will not result in brains or rather minds different from those of previous generations. He's talking again, of course, about brain plasticity. Is that not what the elite would want though? Minds different from previous generations. And I know that each decade, each generation kids has been different from the previous one when you look at it but we're not talking about a style difference we're not talking about customs we're not talking about a language change we're talking about minds different from previous generations when you put all of this together you're looking at almost manufacturing a new breed of young people different from previous generations in terms of their perception reactions and the whole foundation of control and manipulation of people is perception and that's what it all comes down to in the end so that's it for this week that's the news that's the context in connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye